Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat, powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Uju Raku, who is a medical doctor and founder and CEO of the beauty and skincare clinic, Belfiore, based in Lagos, Nigeria. She attained her pre-med qualifications at the University of Manchester and her MD degree in the West Indies. She set up her clinical practice to bring you the best and latest anti-aging and minimally invasive cosmetic skin treatments with a particular focus on skins of color. Today we will be talking about beauty and its definitions. Welcome Dr. Uju to the episode. Hi, thank you for having me, Mo. Um, I'm a medical doctor. I specialize in aesthetic medicine. Um, so I run a clinic called Bell Fury Medical in Lagos, Nigeria, and really focus on skincare and non-surgical cosmetic procedures. Okay, great. So when I say beauty, what does that mean to you? Um, when I think beauty, I think um, looking a certain way that makes a person feel good about themselves. Okay. So I think it's more of a subjective thing. So my I'm beautiful if I feel good about how I look. That's what I think. Okay. And does society have any role to play in how we perceive beauty? Um, obviously, I'm practicing, I live in Lagos. So we see that society has its own definitions of mm. beauty here. So when we think beauty here, what comes to most people's mind is looking a certain way. And I definitely say at this point now, um, it is what most people would define in our environment is a light skin person. And then now they're bringing sort of the perfect body shape, you know, figure eight with a tiny waist. Um, you're thinking long hair, you're thinking long eyelashes, yeah. you're thinking a pointy nose. That is definitely what I feel society and obviously is taking it to now. And as a doctor working in a population of mostly Africans with a high percentage of melanin in their skin, how do you then relate that into your work in terms of addressing the patients who are seeking out lightning treatment? It's quite tough, to be honest. So first of all, I'm a darker skin person. Yeah. So um, you're coming in. So first of all, for most people, they can see that I have not bleached myself clearly. So I'm not <laughs> going by that definition. But I find like that definition of beauty in our environment is so ingrained that people come in after years of using lightning creams and, you know, we're just trying to now, they're coming in literally with complaints from using these products and the steroids and like, you know, the patchy skin. And I'm like, okay, we need to like sort out the health of your skin. We need to go through the products you're using, get you off of this, put you on this. And you find the first thing they say is, I hope it's not going to make me dark. Or are you going to give me something else that's going to lighten me? Mm-hmm. So I think it's such like a psychological um, I don't know if to use the word problem, but a psychological condition that it literally, um, what's the word? It literally just like blinds you from what is even healthy. So you're trying to achieve this unrealistic look, even with like how, like the surgeries and what they're doing to their bodies. Um, and it's taking them away from health into this definition that you're really wondering where did this even start from? Because when I see your, your skin does not look healthy. So why, do you feel this is the definition of beauty 
or the first thing they call and they'd be like, yeah, I want to treat acne, but promise is not going to make me dark. So it's an, it's definitely a big issue here. And then I think even with the younger people, um, they're coming in, obviously not being able to afford some of these expensive creams. And the first thing they're saying is, you know, um, I need to lighten my skin. So it's definitely difficult here. And um, how do I handle it? I mean, I obviously from a medical background, I'm coming from a place of, I want to treat your skin and not do anything that is going to harm you. So I'm coming in with skin health because I feel healthy skin looks good. Um, so I sort of coming with that angle, trying to explain, but you find with most people, it does not go anywhere. They just have in their mind what they believe beauty is. So it's quite sad at this point, definitely. That is quite interesting. And where do you think that came from culturally? Why do we as a society believe that lighter skin is more beautiful? Um, honestly, if I was to go into the history of colorism, um, I, I, I don't know. It's, must, it's something that I think obviously dates back uh, really long time but even today people would say um it's definitely i've seen ads online we're looking for waitresses for an event you must be light-skinned um or people would come and say you know my i got married these are literally all like real life cases my husband picked me because i was light-skinned so where it started from i don't know but I know a lot of people believe that being fairer skinned gives them more opportunities in terms of career, jobs, even up till today. Um, I, it's strange, but I feel I personally have not, um, I don't ever think I felt under that pressure. So it's something I don't know if I've been able to ever understand. Um, so I do find, I, to be honest, it's quite tricky. I'm not sure, but I just, you know, it's just what I Certainly, and obviously colorism has its roots in colonization as well. But why do you think this pervasive mentality of bleaching continues even when most of the people who do use it are aware of the side effects and the problems associated with the chemicals involved? That's the thing I find quite interesting, to be honest, the fact that you've been, you're seeing the effects of these products, you've been told what they're going to do, you're, but yet your mind is so focused on being light-skinned that you ignore it. Um, which is why I think there's a bit of a psychological thing to this um, in terms of knowing something is harmful to you, but still insisting on doing it. Um, I don't know what their reasons are. I think most of them just comes back to the definition of beauty. They just feel they they look better. And you referred to the pointy nose, tight waist, you know, figure eight shape. And the first thing that came to my mind was the Kardashians. Do you think that the media plays a significant role in how we portray beauty and how we perceive beauty as women. Definitely. But you know what I find interesting is that it literally changes because I feel there was a time where it was like attractive to be slim. Um, and then it got to having a big bob and big boobs and a tiny waist. Um, so I definitely do think media plays a part. And then in this, in Nigeria, the celebrities Celebrity culture plays a large part as well. So people are trying to do what the celebrities are doing. So you see sort of like the A-list, like actresses here and um, the people sort of in that celeb culture, they're going ahead and getting all these procedures done and like, putting pictures everywhere. And then the sort of normal person or just average person comes in and is like, oh, she looks so good. I want to look like her. Um, where the celebrities are getting theirs from, I definitely do think uh, media culture has a part to play. Um, sort of what seems to be trending at the minute. I just find it quite interesting that it literally changes. Um, so it's just like, it's going to, I just feel it's impossible to keep up with the 
um, changing standards of beauty at this point. But yeah, I do think media has a part to play. And obviously, while women are then trying to attain these standards of beauty, I suppose my question to you really is, have you had any encounters of women who have had the Brazilian butt lifts done? Um, and what, what is your opinion on the BBLs? Because the BBLs are becoming more common here, you find people are a bit more open talking about them now. Um, so because I'm in the cosmetic industry, I focus on non-surgical, but I find we share a lot of patients with the surgical um, doc- with the surgeons. So I have had some clients that would, you know, have had BBLs and liposuction come back and, and come over to me and say, okay, so I've done this. I like the results, but I feel like we didn't get enough fat out of here or my arms and I don't want to go through surgery again. So they sort of come to me for like touch-ups. Um, I also have some clients that maybe sort of done more non-surgical because I do sort of non-surgical lipo. So I have some clients that have come for non-surgical treatments, but they literally also want to ask me, what do you think about getting this done? So it's something people are talking about a lot more. Um, and then a few of the celebrities here have sort of come out and said, I've done this, I've done that. So they're sort of demystifying it a lot more. Um, so I haven't had any personal experience, obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do have sort of a few clients that have come quite a few actually that have done that um come to me for touch-ups or basically just ask my advice on what they're planning to do next Mm. and tell us a bit more about non-surgical lipo what does that involve um so the treatment i do is called injection lipolysis um, which is a treatment that involves injecting particular solutions into pockets of stubborn fat to cause um, a destruction of fat cells the treatment is for stubborn fat. So the ideal candidate for this particular treatment is someone that exercises, eats well, but just has sort of like, you know, a little area that is just a bit stubborn, like tummy or chin fat or arms. So I feel, and then they usually, we'd normally recommend sort of still eating well and exercising for best results. Um, But I feel it doesn't, a lot of people that are coming in want that sort of drastic weight loss, that drastic change without exercising. They want that tiny waist and the big hips and they don't want to go through anything that I'm going to tell them to come in two to three times every few weeks to do. Um, So a few people will definitely say, no, I don't want to do this. So most I find want to just go the route that sounds easiest. I don't have to exercise. I sleep, I wake up and, you know, I have this tiny waist. Um, so it does, it helps to sort of like stubborn fat in an ordinary and otherwise healthy person, but it doesn't give as drastic results as the liposuction, um, would do the surgical options. And why did you go down the aesthetic route in terms of your career choice as a doctor? Was there anything specific that inspired you? Yeah. So I'd always had a bit of an interest in beauty generally. I'd done some makeup courses in school, um, a bit into skincare, but not exactly clinical dermatology. Um, so she was the end of sort of my internship, just sort of doing research. Um, we just did lots of research. No one was really doing it here at the time, but I had the opportunity to um, abroad for a bit and just sort of just roaming around, like reading around things, seeing what people were doing. And I just kind of bumped into, stumbled into aesthetics and just was like, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, so moving back, I have since then done a postgrad diploma in clinical dermatology because obviously I still want to um, be able to keep up with the medical side. And then I do injectable procedures, Botox fillers. Um, in terms of why I'm doing that, I just feel now there's a, there's so much um, wrong information in the cosmetic industry in Lagos. There's so many harmful products around. 
Um, so I feel the part I play is definitely coming from a medical background. I'm coming from, um, I'm coming and saying, I want to help fix cosmetic issues, but having safety as sort of the most important thing now. So I'm coming with safe solutions, um, being able to treat skincare conditions with safe products. So I think for me, it was basically coming, um, basically just, I, I think it just makes me happy feeling that I can change how a person looks and see them literally get so happy about it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I, I really honestly just stumbled into it, but I found I just really enjoyed it. So I've been doing this um, alone for like the past like five years. Awesome. And obviously with the lightning creams and lightning potions, as you've referred to in Lagos and obviously Nigeria as a whole as well, what kind of problems have you encountered clinically with people using these things, especially because a lot of times they're filled with herbs and chemicals and we're not always certain about the contents of these? The main problems are definitely due to sort of the mixed creams, um, usually hydroquinone based. And what I find quite interesting is they call them organic products. And they're clearly not organic because they're coming in with a cream that is smelling like relaxer, looking yellow. Um, so because hyperpigmentation is a big issue here in our environment, um, I find that most of these cream sellers are basically coming out saying a solution um, and just sort of mixing hydroquinone in a lot of funny creams. So just mostly lightning creams. Um, there's no regulation in the cosmetic industry. So I tell my clients, anybody can literally mix anything in their kitchen and sell to you. So we find they're coming with these creams in like very funny looking containers, smelling a bit off um, and no ingredients labeled, nothing written down, but they've literally been using these products for a while and you just start to see they're having patches on their skin. They're vein, they're seeing, um, you're seeing visible green veins, so most of the products we find have hydroquinone mixing, mixed with steroids, really just aimed at light, at skin lightening. Those would definitely be the most common products we're seeing here. And are there any side effects that are specific to long-term use, especially use continuously on a daily basis without any respite? Um, since most of the creams, um, obviously they have steroids in them. I'm seeing people presenting with steroid acne. So you're now getting really bad cases of acne linked with sort of long-term steroid use. Um, and then obviously you're getting this, the steroids are thinning the skin. So a couple, we're seeing lots of stretch marks, um, green veins, the skin just sort of looking quite fragile. And then from the hydroquinone content, um, hydroquinone is actually sun sensitizing. So you find they're trying to lighten the skin, not understanding what caused the pigmentation. So coming back with sort of hyperpigmented areas. Then I see in sort of the older ladies in like their 60s, after about 25 years use of these creams, um, coming in with sort of ochronosis, which is where you're, you have sort of darker pigment being deposited in certain areas in the skin. Um, and that is a lot more difficult to treat. So these things are all linked, all linked to the cream. So those are the most common cases um, we're seeing. This pigmentation changes, skin thinning, stretch marks. And then I've seen, because um, I did, I worked in a, a hospital, the, one of the teaching hospitals. We actually saw a few cases of kidney disease that had been linked to um, some of these creams. Because obviously we also don't know everything that is in the products. And these products are getting absorbed into the bloodstream. Um, so we had about... I had a few cases of yeah, kidney disease from literally 
main their main um history was long-term use of mixed creams that like we literally don't know what are in the creams wow. and then obviously there's things like skin cancer i haven't picked up any of the more effects that we haven't seen from the creams they're very very common here that is great and i'm so glad that you touched on it as well because it's not something we think about commonly we often think about the dark patches the hyperpigmentation obviously the skin cancer as well but obviously the kidney is also quite responsible for hemofiltration in the body and so if you're putting harmful chemicals into your system you know the kidney will definitely suffer the knock-on effects of that as well but just going back to something you'd said about um, people being happy when you're able to make a change in their appearance that they've been keen on for a while. There's this perception, especially, you know, in the world generally, that people who use aesthetic treatments, things like Botox and fillers, are never satisfied. And so they keep going back and it sort of becomes an addiction. What would you have to say? Um, so people coming saying, oh, I heard once I get this, I can never stop. I don't think that's right, but I feel where that came from is that if you have something you're concerned about, so you have really bad frown lines or, you know, really hyperactive muscles and you come in and I do a Botox treatment. So most of these treatments are not permanent. They're temporary. So after about six to nine months, it starts wearing off, meaning that you're back to the place you were not happy about. So you will come back. I don't think it's that you can never stop. I just think you like the results, so you want to maintain it. Um, obviously, we do have some patients where I think a mental health comes into play, which is something that's not talked about much here. But I would do thorough consultations before I treat anybody. And there's certain things I, I pick up sometimes. So someone comes in and says, you know, I've been treated here, here, Ikoi, Abuja, here. Um, you know, I had this done, had that done, had that done. I didn't like it. I came here and they're maybe like bashing their doctor. Um, and I start, I, I, I keep talking to them and I, and you, with some clients, you just find that it is more of a possible body dysmorphia or a self-esteem um, issue coming up. And you, where you find with certain clients, just from talking to them, you can tell from their history that this person is not going to be happy. So I'm very selective about who I treat. I don't just treat everybody. I'd make sure we've had about a one hour consultation, um, talk through their entire history, how they feel about themselves, what their expectations are um, before I go ahead. And it's also the reason I sort of went into psychotherapy a little bit. So I do have a psychotherapist who works in my clinic, in which case I have seen a few cases where I've said to them, okay, after the consultation, I'm okay working with you, but only on the condition that you speak to a therapist first, in which case we're working together. Because I don't want to be in a situation where, um, you know, someone's complaining bitterly about her nose. And I've talked to her and I can tell, I, I think it's more of a self-esteem thing. There's something making you unhappy. And if I work and fix your nose and we haven't sorted out that internal issue, it will make it worse. So I do have a few clients that are sort of, um, I've gently said, I want you to speak to a therapist before I work on you. So to answer your question, I don't think it's a case of once you start, you can't stop. I think some people just, you know, like the result and want to maintain because most of the treatments only offer temporary results. Um, but yes, there are a group of patients who um, would come in and after a consult, you can tell there's something a little bit more going on internally. And I'm not as keen treating those people, but um, that's something I can sort of pick up now when I'm just sort of talking to certain clients. And that's amazing. And I suppose the experience that you've had over the past couple of years then allows you to be able to identify that a lot 
quicker yeah, than exactly. it have been in the past. And mm-hmm. body dysmorphia is obviously not something that we talk about in African cultures. Um, yeah. So tell us a bit more about that and in what sort of ways does that present in maybe not necessarily just the aesthetic industry, but also just in mm-hmm. the African setting. And do we have any sort of options? Is there anything that we can do to try to help people that are living with body dysmorphia? Um, so we definitely don't talk about mental health issues or body dysmorphia in this environment at all but it's basically a condition where a person just sort of spends so much time worrying about their appearance and they're usually pointing out things that other people are not noticing um so i'd give you an example because i had a client who walked into my office and as soon as she came in i didn't i couldn't guess what she was going to come in for just sort of you know yes yeah, sit down how, how are you doing today um, and then she starts literally starts crying saying i'm botched and so I'm like, oh, you know, what have, what, what's been done? Have you gone somewhere else? What's the problem? And she goes, look at me, can't you tell I'm botched? And I said, no, I, I honestly don't know what you're talking about. And she goes, my nose, there's a problem with my nose. And I look at this lady's nose. It's just a normal African nose. You know, the Africans have sort of wider noses, nothing that is standing out as, wow, this is so hideous. And I said to her, why do you think, you know, why do you think you have, there's a problem with your nose? And she picked up the mirror and just kept going on about how it was so ugly and it's caused so many problems in her life, paying so much attention to it. And sort of in her, in her mind, I just felt she had created this massive flaw that she'd literally over-exaggerated this flaw in her mind that was not visible to anybody else. Um, so I feel that's something I, it's, it's, I think it's probably more common here, but because sort of the industry, the cosmetic ind- the aesthetic industry is just growing here is sort of, I'm not sure they have anywhere else to present to basically. So they're not, they're now presenting to me because they've heard she can fix this. But, um, I, I, I find that is it. I did think that would be a tricky case. And that's kind of person I will not jump into fixing. Um, because it's now, I'm not a psych, I'm not a therapist, but at that point I'm thinking, there's something else going behind the scenes here that we need to sort out because if I come in and do a little treatment that is going to be non-surgical and not permanent and what this lady is going through has not been fixed, she's going to be more upset. Mm. She'd even sort of, yeah, so it was, it's quite tricky. So it doesn't, I don't think it presents that often here because the whole surgery and cosmetic industry is only just growing. But um, I have seen a few cases that have sort of raised little alarm bells. Um, and then also we don't really, the therapy culture here is very, it's almost non-existent. So you find that even if it's something you, someone realizes a family member has, they don't really know what to do with it. Um, and seeing a therapist or psycho- a psychologist is, I think probably a bit stigmatized here as well. So it's something that I just feel it's not being picked up and they probably just don't know what to do with it. And I was going to ask about that, actually. How do you go about that you know, with having the psychotherapy at your practice? How do you then go about in terms of destigmatizing, you know, having the psychotherapist be involved in sort of the shared care agreement that you have with some of these patients? Are they normally yeah. to the suggestion? Um, it has honestly been very difficult. So we've come from an aspect of just saying, um, are you picking out things I think a bit more common in the environment? So are you stressed? Are you anxious? Are you feeling sad? So just sort of coming, you know, asking questions that are not, 
I find using terms that are not um, put, like possibly derogatory. So we're not saying, do you have mental health problems? Mm. I'm saying, do you feel like this? So trying to sort of just make the terms sound a little bit more simple. Then would you like to speak to a specialist? So I find number one, the language definitely helps. Um, then the second thing I found is I've had a few ladies come in and you can tell sometimes, sometimes they just want to talk to somebody. Um, so the second thing I've said is, you know, I'm, I'm not so qualified in helping you with the issues you're having, but I have someone that you can talk to just to, you know, discuss with. So that's the second way. So I just sort of tell them, would you like to talk to somebody? Um, as opposed to saying, I think you need to see the therapist for your, you know, how you're thinking. Um, the third thing we had done was I actually started offering a few free sessions. So we said, let's do a few group sessions, letting people know that other people are going through the same thing you're going through and they're willing to come and talk about it. So we actually hosted about three group sessions with about six to eight people um, and then took feedback, got feedback um, afterwards, like feedback forms. And people were so happy. You know, I, it was so nice knowing other people are going through the same thing as me. Um, I actually sat in one of the sessions and saw a few ladies, you know, opened up, started crying. But I think just coming out of that, a few of them said, you know, I felt, I feel so light. I didn't even know that this would make me feel like this. So I'm trying to do a lot of sort of demystifying what therapy involves, just calling it talk therapy, talk through your problems. You'll feel better about it. Talk through with somebody else. Um, so it's getting a few more people are sort of being a bit more open to it, but it, I think I definitely have a bit more work to do in that area. Mm. I love that actually. I think sometimes the way we present things to people can often determine whether or not they're going to accept it or whether or not they're going to reject it. And coming back to sort of young ladies who have always been told that it's because of their light skin that they're going to succeed in life or find love in life. Do you think that we are still stuck in that perception societally or do you think that we are moving beyond an impasse? Definitely still there, definitely. Um... Yeah, it's definitely still a, still a problem now. So I feel I'm talking to a lot of, well, you know, I've been on a few um, programs here, beauty programs, sort of radio talk, talks about bleaching. And they normally ask, what do you think we should do to stop this? And I just sort of tell them, I think, I think people, parents have the responsibility to start telling their daughters from a young age, you're beautiful, you're pretty literally just start giving them positive just compliments all the time because i think it's when a child does not have she hasn't grown up feeling that she's beautiful she's going to succumb obviously to what society tells her to be but i feel if you have a young kid at home you're literally just like reinforcing telling them how good they look your skin is beautiful i love you because you're dark-skinned you're going to find someone who loves dark skin chocolate they grow up thinking, you know, my skin is healthy, melanin. They're proud of their, they're proud of their color. I remember having a blog when I was younger called Black Skin Barbie or something. But they're literally, <laughs> they're literally able to own it. But <laughs> like I think dark skin something. But I feel it's when they, they're growing up in an environment. Because some people, they come from families where their siblings are lighter skinned. And they're just sort of seeing the positive reinforcement on the lighter skinned people. So they just start feeling, you know, I must not be beautiful. And then they come out into society and society is obviously saying light skin, glow, bright and white. So you find they're now, that's now their definition of beauty. So I honestly think it is, it is giving a child a 
definition of beauty when they're young for them to sort of hold on to. So it's still, it's still a problem now. Um, but I just, I honestly think that's just the best way and education. But even though I honestly find the education is not doing as much because despite them knowing the, what's happening, most of them still insist on doing this. So honestly, I honestly don't know if it sounds like, yeah, educate them, but most people know, but they still choose to use the creams. So it's, it's tough, really. And you actually mentioned something which I was just about to ask. You talked about glowing skin. Do you think that people are looking for selfie-ready skin all the time? Selfie-ready skin. Oh, um, people, people use the word glow here a lot. Mm. But I find it quite interesting because people that use glow, they're normally actually trying to describe lighter skin. So mm. most of the lightening products on the market here are called glowing white, fair and glow, something bright. They usually... <laughs> once i literally have a client and i see i'm like what products are you on i just see something glow something bright and white it's just you already know it's a bleaching cream so there's already that defined notion of glow means light skinned but i tell them that is not my definition of glow my definition of glow is healthy skin when skin is healthy it looks you it's like it's shining and I can see your, your forehead is glowing. I can see from here. It's, <laughs> it's skin that has been exfoliated. You've taken off the dead skin. The skin cells are healthy. That for me is a true glow. So I tell people, you know, darker skin people, you can glow as well. When you see glow, you're thinking healthy skin. But most of these people that are coming in with these products, you find the skin does not even, it doesn't look healthy. It literally just looks like a, sometimes, it, sometimes it's so bad, it looks like, a, like an unnatural pale color. And it's not, if you check the definition of glow in the dictionary, that is not a glow. Healthy skin that's been exfoliated regularly, good routine, um, and the skin cells are literally just happy. Um, in terms of selfie-ready skin, hmm, I think, I don't know what they're defining as selfie-ready skin, to be honest, because most people are using filters now anyway. <laughs> Yeah. And you mentioned about exfoliating as well, which is obviously a part of most skin care regimes. What kind of advice would you recommend? Sort of, uh, let's say, normal to combination skin. What kind of regime would you normally recommend? So um, I tell everyone the most basic routine you should be on is morning is wash the skin twice a day and sunscreen in the morning. So if someone says, I am so lazy, I don't want to use anything. I'd say your most basic routine is a face wash and a sunscreen. So morning time, you should wash your face. Most people who are coming here using sort of bar soaps, Dettol soap, all these sort of um, just random products. But it's important to have a face wash, a product that says, face on it because obviously your face is the skin on the face is a bit more sensitive so we we want to pamper it a little bit more so say use a nice face wash and then a sunscreen then most black people say oh I'm, i don't need to use a sunscreen blah blah but you find most people are going on to bleaching creams because they're trying to treat hyperpigmentation but you need to understand pigmentation the number one cause is sun exposure so we live in a hot country so if you're using a sunscreen you're not going to get darker to now start looking for creams that are going to lighten and damage your skin. Then we know the sun's rays actually break down collagen and speed up aging of the skin. So sunscreen is also important to slow down the aging process. So morning time, I'd say wash and the sunscreen. Most sunscreens have moisturizing properties, so you can actually just wash and put on your sunscreen for a lazy routine. But some people who have sort of drier skin types, you can wash, put on a nice moisturizer, and then use your sunscreen over it. Then evening time, wash and moisturize for is sort of basic but then i like bringing in sort of my extra products in the evening so when i say extras maybe thing you're treating ingredient and products you're using to treat the skin acne treatment or anti-aging treatment your retinols your serums 
Um, two main reasons for that being the first one is that you're sleeping in the evening. So your skin is, um, your body's resting. So your skin is making better use of the products at night. Then the second thing is a few of these treatment products cause slight sun sensitivity, such as the retinols, vitamin C serums, which is okay for someone living in a temperate region. But here, again, we're dealing with lots of pigment. So I say, if you're not sure, just use the products at night. So that anti-aging cream, just put it in the night. Um, so I, I like to sort of bring in the extras in the evenings. And then to know what extras to use, I find it depends on the person's complaint. So if someone is complaining of acne, then I'm now sort of bringing in an acne treatment. If you're complaining of sort of early stage lines or, you know, my skin looks a bit older, I'm thinking anti-aging products, retinol, vitamin C products. If you're saying my skin is so dry, I'm bringing in hyaluronic acid serum. So I don't think it's about using everything on the market. I think it's having a basic routine and then being able to identify what does my skin need and then I now sort of bringing those extras. Awesome, but I still have a pending question about exfoliation because everyone I ask always gives me a different answer. How frequently should we exfoliate? Once a week, every day? Um, so exfoliate, how often would depend on what sort of exfoliation you're doing. So um, I tell people exfoliation means you're taking off dead skin. We know that our skin is made of live cells and they sort of die over time. And they're usually just sort of waiting to be sloughed off. As we get older, that process of dead skin sloughing off tends to slow down a little bit. So you start finding there's an accumulation of dead skin and your skin is just looking a bit dull not really glowing as much, your, pro your products are not sort of settling in properly. Um, so that's where the need for exfoliation comes in. So I tell people we can exfoliate two ways. The first is mechanical exfoliation. We're using a very gentle scrub. And in which case I normally recommend two to three times a week. You don't want to sort of over traumatize the skin because with black skin, there's a link between trauma and pigment. So that one I do sort of two to three times a week. Then you have chemical exfoliation where you're bringing in certain ingredients that just cause dead skin to literally slough off or melt away. Your glycolic acids, salicylic acids, um, that nice family of acids. Um, with the chemical exfoliation, the products come in different concentrations. So you can have a 5% product that is nice and gentle, safe to use every evening. You have a 15%, 30%, you want to maybe use two to three times. So most of the companies would obviously give you their recommendation on the bottle and that's usually what's safe to, safe to do. So it, it usually depends on the strength of the product. Um, yeah, so some, some chemical exfoliants can be used every day. Um, but then if it's mechanical exfoliation, I normally say two to three times a week, not overdoing it. Okay, that's fab. And is there any magic thing that we should be eating for a nice glowy skin? Um, a good balanced diet, lots of water, um, vitamins that come up for skin. Vitamin C is amazing for skin. So vitamin C is a natural brightener. Um, vitamin C encourages collagen production, so it's anti-aging. Vitamin C is an antioxidant, meaning it's protecting our skin cells from damage. So if anything, I put uh, most of my skin, my clients are on vitamin C tablets at home. Um, and then really just a mix of everything, but I normally sort of push more vitamin C um, and supplements have glutathione in them as well. And normally quite nice for healthy, bright, glowing skin, but otherwise balanced diet and lots of water. Awesome. That's fantastic. So yeah, so we've got a few takeaways today. And um, just before we go away, could you give us a championship point for um, our listeners to take home bite size? Okay, so I think because obviously the 
topic was about beauty um i would just want to tell everyone that you're beautiful how you are i feel god created us like this for a reason god put melanin in your skin for a reason um you know whatever what however you look now you are beautiful already so if it's about enhancing it it's okay but don't bend over backwards trying to um trying to create a perception you feel society has told you to be so define your own beauty is my would be my championship point awesome. i love that define your own beauty i like that and that is tweetable as well thank you so much for coming on today dr uju thank you so much for having me Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before. Remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician. Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at aslicehealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction. Yeah.